Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's up? How are you doing, team? First up, I hope you've all had a chance by now to listen to the previous episode, which was my interview with Edward Thorpe. I mean, the man is a real-life superhuman. He has such an incredible story. If you haven't heard it yet, please make sure to check it out. Now, anyway, on this episode... I'm joined by George, who also goes by at Trader on Twitter. George is an Australian equities trader with a momentum slash swing trading type of approach. In the past, George has held a few finance-related positions, but since late 2009, he's mostly been trading independently. During the interview, George and I got speaking about lessons he learned early on, the effect that coaching and mentoring has had on his trading, specifics about the setups that George trades and also his involvement with venture capital, which was pretty cool to hear about. And as we do get quite specific on trading setups during the interview, I just want to give a friendly reminder, and that is you are entirely responsible for your own trading decisions. Please remember this, guys. And that's it from me. Please welcome George for episode 110. Just shutting down now for a public holiday tomorrow, so just running through uh, a few charts for, for Friday. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, we've got Australia Day tomorrow. Uh, any plans? I am having a couple of people over here, so just with the, with the family, with the children, nothing too exciting. <laughs> Good stuff, man. Good stuff. Well, I'm also pleased to say that you're my first guest after however many episodes, a hundred and something episodes, uh, that's from New Zealand originally, although you're also living in Australia now like I am. But um, yeah, very cool to have uh, someone else who's from New Zealand on the podcast. Finally, I knew it would happen one day. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get interested in trading? Uh, when did this sort of start for you? I guess I was introduced as at a pretty young age with uh, just with the family at home. We used to have a a sort of a trading competition when we're about four or five years old. I have a, a brother 11 months older than me, so we're pretty competitive. And Dad gave us, uh, 
$1,000 in the account and we'd, we'd sort of go through the newspaper every morning and which was a day delayed the data obviously and, and pick a stock which normally would be one that sells ice cream or, or something you'd know and we'd, we'd track the prices and um, I think that probably at a young age installed a, an interest and then after university, well during university really really got into it so that was 2001 so it was an interesting time when the market's there to, to start sort of uh, learning and, and going through everything. And, and then I've really been sort of full-time at it since then. Excellent. So was your dad a bit of an investor himself then? He was. He's, he's certainly not a trader. or a, a, He dabbles in the stock market, but um, no, not, not as a trader, which I guess is sort of what I do today. He uh, just has an interest in, in business and probably sort of wanted us to have an interest in, in understanding value or, or perceived value. Okay. And so I've got to ask, who won out of you and your brother? How did the competition play out? Well, I believe I won, but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll let that a, a debate for the Christmas table, but he uh, he got a little bit bored of cutting out the numbers and, and sticking them on a, on the wall. So I don't actually know what happened to his account. It might have uh, might have had a good compounded return by now if he held held uh, Telstra, the New Zealand Teleco stock. <laughs> That's funny. So you said you got really serious about trading, you know, a little later in life at university. What sort of things did you start doing? You know, when you say you started to get serious about it, um, what did that sort of look like? I had a friend who was, he was a few years older and he was trading and he, he just, he was a very, he was a good rugby player and a very competitive person. And he just sort of, I guess, sold me on the idea that it was the ultimate game. And I'd always always been interested and I guess was learning about it probably more from the economic standpoint rather than a, um, a fluid uh, market standpoint. And so I went and spoke to, to my father and, and one of his friends and he said he, he knew someone who was a asset manager in New Zealand. He said, look, why don't you go and have a chat with him? He'll be able to tell you, you know, how it really works. Uh, so I did that and, and he put me on to a few books which started at the Market Wizards, the, the first edition they did and, and I read all them and I guess from then on in I, I knew it was for me and and the journey started, just read everything I could and, you know, had I had an account open but it hadn't, you know, really been doing anything and you're kind of throwing darts and I guess with the progression of, of technology you, you were able to for someone who wasn't 100% committed, able to start studying with, with real data rather than just reading. So that that got me going. And then when I had the ability to put a bit of money into the account, did that and uh, and then, yeah, went from there. Right. So how did that conversation go with uh, the asset manager you spoke with in New Zealand? Well, he basically said, you know, this this will will beat you up if you try and do this and this is what you need to focus on and it's he said everyone thinks they're going to get rich quickly but it's just not how it works and if you if you have that mentality you know you'll be refunding your account very often um and they were certainly more of a conservative you know big fund manager um and so he he said you need to firstly pick your style of what sort of trader you want to be do you want to be a you know a a conservative investor? Do you want to be fundamentals? Do you want to be momentum based? A day trader? 
currency, stocks. So, and I think a lot of people actually, um, certainly ones that I've, I've helped or have seen over the years, they take too long to pick exactly who they are in the stock market and, and it causes style drift, which I think is, is a really a big issue for, for, you know, traders in their first few years. They'll be day trading the index and then calling themselves a stock investor or, you know, trading the Aussie dollar and, it just doesn't work. You've got to dedicate your life to really to one asset class as far as I'm concerned and and maybe, you know, you'll be able to master that after a while. So why do you think that that style drift actually occurs in the first place? I don't think it does with professionals. Um, certainly the people that have trained me don't. They, they trade one style or one asset class. Um, I mean, obviously, it can happen in, in bigger organisations, but you'll normally have a specialist for each um, each individual class. But I think it's people staring at a screen with lots of flashing lights coming at them all day long who read a tweet or are listening to CNBC and hear, you know, the Aussie dollar's going to do something tomorrow or it's doing it now, and, and there's just that temptation to gamble. Because you know, you if you've got a trading plan, you you won't be you won't be trading currency and stocks and commodities. Well, ninety nine percent of people won't be. You know, the exception to the rule who can do it, you know, that's fine for them. But the market works on probability rather than exceptions. So, I mean, in my opinion, it's it's better to choose at least narrow it down to a currency trader, a stock trader, and then you can hone in on your style. So that would be sort of your advice for preventing or reducing the the temptation of style drift is to just pick one asset class and really sort of zoom in on that. Absolutely. I mean, I the just the mental and emotional cost. I mean, I, I've you know I've made every mistake there is as a trader. So I can speak from my own experience. You'd you'd be trading you know, your, the stock market and you'd have your five-minute chart maybe of the, the XJO or, or um, the E-mini or whatever it was up there and you might see a trade which potentially makes sense and all of a sudden you're day trading the index and you just you can't be focused on so many things at one time and I'd notice that I would really just be making the broker money, um, you know, losing a bit here, making a bit there, but all of a sudden I'd miss that one or two trades which – you know, it would be the good trades in, in the stock account. So it's, yeah, it's it's not what a newcomer to the stock market should be doing. Um, and the temptation will be there. So uh, one of my mentors always said to me, he doesn't even look at the index. He said, if you can't tell what the stock market's doing by how the leading names are acting, you shouldn't really be a stock trader. And I think that that's very true. And um, I, I had to go through a period where I actually just shut off the index and, and didn't look at it because there was just the opportunity to trade. It was too great. And, and once I stopped doing that, um, my results really started to turn because all of a sudden I just I could narrow my focus down to one or two particular setups and, and just try to master them. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I think the, the key word uh, in your response there being uh, focus for sure. Yeah. Now, the asset manager you spoke to in New Zealand, uh, you said that he uh, recommended a few books that you read, uh, those of course being uh, some of the Market Wizards books. Do you remember what any of the other books were that he recommended to you? Uh, the Livermore 
um, the reminiscence of a stock operator and then the other, the shorter book, I, I forget its name. And then I actually went from there and sort of found who these market wizards were and, and if they had then gone on to, to write books um, and a few of them had, so, so started reading them and I guess got my, my style sort of based off the William O'Neill um, can slim model and then that slowly progressed on to, to people like Mark Minervini and Gil Morales um, who I guess have a slightly more refined and updated version um, and, and that's really my exact style. I've I copied them, have um, have added a few of my own little intricacies, and and ad- adopted it for the Australian market. Now, at some point, I presume we're probably jumping forward a couple of years. You actually picked up a job working at an investment bank. Um, can you tell us a bit about the sort of things you were doing uh, inside of the investment bank? Well, I was, I was on the M and A side there, and and we. We had a trading division, so I sort of found myself hanging around the tr- trading division the whole of the day. Uh, we were in the, the corporate finance side, so when I moved uh, back over to Australia, got on to an institutional desk um, at a firm here, uh, advising a, a couple of institutions and, and writing reports for them. So I guess that's when it, it started to get serious, and, and that gave me a really good insight into how the big money moves, where they're buying, how they're buying, and why they're buying. Right. And you said um, when we were speaking prior to now, you said that a lot of the people who were on the desk with you and who you worked with laughed at the idea or almost laughed at the idea of using charts. Can you tell us a little bit about the mindset there? Yep. The, I think there was, there was over 100 brokers or yeah, well, brokers would be the right word and I think we had one technical analyst uh, and there was probably 15 fundamental analysts and there just wasn't much attention paid to uh, to any of the work done there and the the firm wasn't it was sort of a tradition traditionally old Australian brokerage where it was blue blue chips um, there was a couple of small cap operators there who did this but yeah it just it wasn't I never went to a morning meeting and heard anyone say, you know, the sector's setting up, there's a whole bunch of names about to move, um, you know, this chart's breaking down. It, it just wasn't wasn't discussed. And I, by that time, I, I felt reasonably comfortable trading with charts and, and I just couldn't get over it. And especially through the GFC when you could, you know, it was pretty obvious um, looking at the charts that the market had topped, even if you even if you're three months late on it, that you're in a bear market. And I just saw, you know, so many people, not necessarily at that firm, but just wherever, just buying those first dips, buying the second dip, and, and they just got they got their head torn off. And it, it's just something that you can avoid, I think. I mean, you might, you know, you might get sucked in and trade a couple of the, the rallies back in, but, you know, the, the good traders wouldn't – the good traders made money in, in that year rather than lost – 60 or 70 percent which sadly happened to a lot of people so when did you decide to go out on your own and, and when did you actually feel comfortable to make that that leap if you will um i went out uh, in 2000 late 2009 and traded for myself for a while and then started trading for um, a private equity firm and we 
I was probably more lucky than smart, but was able to to piggyback on the back of the the gold equities run and and uh, the rare earths were very strong sectors in in that sort of 12 to 18 months. So we were lucky that we had a a good couple of years and and then that allowed me to completely go out on my own uh, after after I'd done that. Now, at some point during all of this, you had a mentor, which you've already kind of mentioned, Mark, uh, how do I pronounce his last name? Minavini, Mark Minavini. Yep. He was featured in uh, one of the Market Wizards books, I believe. How did he kind of help you out? How did you come across him? How did you get to know him? Tell us a little bit about how that came about. Well, first, we, my wife and I, uh, she was my partner at the time. Um, we moved over to, to Argentina. There was uh, a, a guy who I knew who had managed a, a fund for Soros for a while, and he was over there, and I thought it was a good chance to go and pick his brain and um, we were starting to trade the U.S. market, so the time zone worked. And while I was there, had made a list of the the best traders that were alive, and sort of wrote them, you know, letters or emails or read their books, however I could get in communication with them. And the first uh, one actually to respond was a guy Mark Cook, who was also a market wizard. He was a day trader. Um, and he responded, and so I went over to Ohio to see him, um, and he trained me up in, in, I guess, day trading. He was um, just the most amazing day trader. That it didn't fit my trading style, but um, certainly learning the the discipline and his daily ritual and and how he he views the market and almost the simplicity in what he does. You know, I was still 26, 27 at the time, you you know, you kind of think there's this edge that potentially these big guys have that you just, you know, you might not ever get or you might you might not be able to get. And after, that was a big turning point in my trading when I saw how he traded. It was just so simple, yet he will probably go down as, you know, one of the greatest day traders of all time with an audited performance and and so that that was a huge turning point for me. And then with uh, with Mark Minavini, it was the same same sort of thing. Read his books, um, got in contact, and he said, "Look, we do you know some programs once a year, or they just started doing them." So went over and did that. And I went back last year actually um, to see him, and he they do services and stuff like that that you can subscribe to um, online. But I, I think as a as a new trader getting that early mentorship or direction from someone is, is just so important because you can spend so long making so many easy mistakes and you're always going to make them, but at least if you have someone guiding you or giving you a blueprint, you should be able to identify when you're making them earlier and hopefully stop them. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I mean, I've just, I learned so much of those two guys Um over over the time I subscribed to to um, Mark's website now he he puts a few of his trades up and does a great webinar every every week um, you know it is quite expensive for newcomers so that might not suit suit everyone but there's certainly a lot of decent people out there and I think it's important just to, to find someone with an audited um, performance and if it suits you you know you can you can start to sort of mimic their style. And then, of course, you adapt that as you go on. But, I mean, there's no need to 
to, you know, reinvent the wheel here. There's since Livermore to Davos to Wyckoff to Morales to Minervini to O'Neill, there's not that many deviations in their trading style. I mean, of course there is, but they're looking at the same things, good stories, good charts, pivotal points to buy them, um, you know, controlling the risk. That's really incredible. I would no idea that uh, you knew Mark Cook and had traded with him. That's, uh, that's really cool. Um, and I'd like to go back to that point because you said that you, you know, were there, you were on site with him and you, you saw him actually trading and how he does things. At what point did you know that day trading wasn't for you? You, you know, Mark Cook is a day trader. He was showing you sort of how he goes about things. And, and even though you said it was a very simple, uh, what he does is so simple, um, you still said that it, it's something that just still wasn't for you. How did you know it wasn't something for you? Well, I, I had day traded before then and I, I sat there live trading with Mark and so I could mimic his trades and he gave us his, you know, his five or six setups. Um, so you knew exactly what he's doing. I, well, the time zone was a bit of an issue when I came back to Australia because he really was the bonds and the e-mini. Um, and didn't move outside of them. That was it. And he was the master of those. I it didn't work with my my personality. I I don't like writing the ticks. I like to be able to to buy something, put my stop in or my alert in whatever I might have, and go and have a cup of tea, or um, you know go and go and do something which isn't just staring at the screen. So day trading was was never going to work work for me despite the fact that you know I'd, <laughs> I'd trained with one of the the best guys there is it just I, I don't think I would have been able to make money out of it my personality would have lent to me not following the system well enough because if you're day trading you really you can't have any deviations from from your rules I think the stock market's a little more forgiving um, and a little more flexible so for someone uh, of my my makeup, um, that was where I wanted to be. And when you were trading with Mark in on his on site in his office, wherever that might have been, uh, is that something that you actually paid for, or did you just somehow be able to form a relationship with him and sort of get your foot in the door that way? How'd that opportunity come about? Because you know, people listening to this, they're like. You know, you made a list of the best traders in the world and then you sort of tried to reach out to some of them and, you know, spend time with them. You know, it's um, it's quite incredible that you were able to, you know, get that time with Mark. So I'm just curious how that actually panned out. Well, I, I've done both with Mark. He's uh, a friend now. I actually nearly got him over here to Australia to come and do a conference and we he, he was ready to come, but we, we the demand just didn't seem there, which... Surprised me. I mean, you know, it's just such an opportunity to sit with them. But um, Mark, when I went over, uh, it was for a pay program. Um, I don't recall the exact cost, but it was it was between five and, and ten thousand dollars or something like that. Um, and then, obviously, you know, you you can establish whatever relationship you want going going full from there. And there was there was a couple of us who did that. And it was for for a week over there, and yeah, it, it, it's I think it's really worth doing. And you might not have to go to America to go and do it. Um, I'm sure there's some good people here in Australia, but it is just formulating what his daily ritual was and, and seeing how he prepared every morning um, 
and 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 the same goes for for Mark Minervini. Um, he does he does a paid service, uh, and you can this or last year went and traded with him, and you know just the calmness that you see these guys in. Um, it's just it's a second nature to them. It either the alert either goes off or it doesn't. There's there's no stress. It's just that that trade works. You're you're either right or you're wrong on it, and then you just repeat, repeat, repeat. But I mean, you know, these guys are masters of what they've been doing. They've probably taken that trade tens of thousands of times, so it's it's just a a repeat model. So with Mark Minerveni, what were some of the really big things that he taught you, or things that you picked up from him? Um, I know it's kind of a bit of a cliche question, but was there anything that really sort of stands out as being sort of that's the reason? why he's a good trader oh max i mean he's 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 just a great trader he, he's very mathematical so he has his his couple of setups which he uses the vcps a big one and he'll take that and and over and over again just the same repetitive pattern and then just how he scales in, scales out of positions how he's always looking you know to be a two-to-one trader so that means he's you know, he's got to be right half the time and his average gain has to be twice his average loss. Um, and I think once as a trader, once you work out that, uh, you, you keep your scorecard, as he used to put it, where you record every trade, how long you're in the trade, you what the results were, and you analyse that just religiously, weekly, monthly, quarterly. You, you very quickly pick up where your, your faults are. So he four or five years ago when I first went over to see him, just really drilled that in and and it helps as I mentioned, it helps see your own weaknesses. So it's the deviations between making zero percent return and twenty percent return are not that significant if you if your average loss moves from ten to to seven percent. That can have just such a compounding effect. So I think that was a big one. And again just the discipline. There's just you know, I, I can't. I don't want to speak for Mark at all, um, but I just can't imagine him taking a trade outside his system. Like it just would not happen. So, and, and same with with um, with Mark Cook. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Something you said to me, again, referring to a conversation we had uh, prior to this, this call we're on right now, um, you said that probably around about 80% of mistakes that particularly newer traders make are avoidable. Why do you say this and how are they avoidable? Well, I, I guess the big mistakes for for a momentum based trader such as such as myself is you should be able to buy at the at the danger line so at the the point where the trade becomes active so i mean if you if you limit your your buy above that point to 3% so let's say your alert goes off and immediately it's it's gone 3 or 4% if you just don't take any over that bracket there That'll reduce your chasing, and one of the big, the big things which affected my trading, which really improved my numbers, was was violation. So if you do buy it right, uh, and the stop pulls in on you straight away, you'll you'll have your stop loss in play. But um, what what are the only times to get out before your stop loss is triggered? And I still see um, some guys I. I talk to a bit about trading, like you'll, you'll still see them buy perfectly, the stock pulls in 3 or 4%, they go, bugger it, it's not working, close the position out, and two weeks later it's up 30%. So, I mean, that, that's just two ways of just right there of you, you've bought the thing right, but you're not A, chasing, and you're not B, choking the trade off too early, so you're giving it a chance to work. Um, and so I think, I think most people, as we've discussed already, who go into trading, they have style drifts, so they'll, instead of focusing on, on say, that particular setup, they'll be intraday trading the, the S&P or, or the Aussie dollar. Um, so, you know, if you don't chase, you stick to your setup, you trade one asset class, um, don't add to losing trades and, and don't trade against trend, um, you know, right right there, uh, you, you've got a pretty good chance of surviving and, and it just comes down to risk management. Um, and, and I think, you know, most people who have tried to go out or, or trade on their own who haven't been mentored have been told, you know, this is a stock to buy and they just keep buying it on the way down. And the, the effect of a stock that falls 50% has to go up 100%. Everyone sort of knows that old adage. So if you, if you get yourself into trouble early, it's, it's quite a, a big hole to dig yourself out of. So another thing I've found as well, moving back from cash, uh, when you when you are forced to cash by the market, is is just to come back incrementally. So you know, you I talk to people and they'll say, oh, everything looks good again. We'll quickly go 100% long, and and that's how you can have big drawdown happen. Big drawdowns happen. So if I'm if I'm coming back in from cash and I'm seeing a couple of leading names set up and the index is still going sideways. Uh, and then I see a few more leading names set up. I'll I'll try one or two out, and if they're not working, I'm not going to be adding any more positions. So I'll let the market tell me to to be adding, um, rather than just having a view that things are things are fine now, and I quickly need to to get back into the market. Okay, I actually really like that point. So you're talking about in periods where you might not have any trades on, and you're entirely in cash, and you start to see some names setting up. You don't just you know, put trades on every name that you see, you're just sort of slowly building your positions back up. Is that, did I understand that correctly? 
That's right. I mean, my my system works very much on following leadership. So what are the leading sectors? What are the leading names in the sectors? What's driving the market internally? I I couldn't care what the index is doing. If it's under high distribution, I'm I'm not going to be in. And there's pretty high chance that there's very few names setting up constructively. So it doesn't happen. But if I if, say, uh, I remember the index last year looked like it was going to break out through uh, through 5.6 or 5.7, I, I forget, and all of a sudden we had a bunch of distribution set up in the pivot and the leading names started failing, so I, I went back to cash um, and it was another sort of six weeks until we got a, a turn and the leading names set up while the index was still finding a bottom, tried one or two out, you know, you, you, you're up quickly in them or, or they go sideways or they go down. If I get stopped out on those one or two names, well, the market's telling me that it's not ready to go or that my uh, criteria is faulty. And, um, you know, now uh, I don't think that's the case. So it's it's the market telling me that it's it's not ready to move yet. And so you can keep, if you're taking a 10% position size and let's say you've got a 10% stop, you know, you, you lose on both those two trades, you, you drop 2%. It's it's not the end of the world. You can recover from that. But what you don't want to do is go 100% long, get stopped out of, you know, everything pretty quickly and, and drop 10 or 15%. Okay. So you're obviously talking about risking 1% of your capital on each trade. That, that was just an example. Uh, but yes. Yeah. Okay. So now is probably a good point to actually talk uh, some specifics about your actual strategy. So, you know, just from a high level, how would you describe your style of trading? I'm not actually sure. I guess it's a momentum-based momentum, momentum based trading approach where I look for strong sectors, strong company stories, strong earnings, strong revenue growth, and then I will always, always use a chart to get in. And I, I only have a couple of entry points. So I have the uh, the volatility contraction pattern, which is from um, from Martin Avini. So if anyone's interested in that, you can buy his book and, and read about it. He goes in depth about that. And that's effectively a, a breakout trade. Um, and then I use a, a pocket pivot, which comes from um, from Gil Morales and, and Chris Catcher. Uh, and, then, and then sort of a pullback buy method where the stock is already trending. I've already initiated a position from a breakout and I'm buying off the first pullback to the moving average when it's obeyed um, on the uptick. So I wait for the, the higher close of the previous bar. And and really, I mean, well, on the long side anyway, that's that's about it um, that I have. And and there's just no shortage of, of trades to find, so it's never a problem there. Am I not getting enough stuff setting up? There's there's always stuff setting up when the market when I should be in the market if there's nothing setting up well that's the market telling me something so by you know sticking to this process you you automatically eliminate those times when you shouldn't be in the market when you should just be sitting on your hands or um, short if if you like to short uh, stocks and can do it properly. Okay. And we've already established that you're not a day trader. So you probably fit more into the category of what we'd call a swing trader. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And what markets are you trading? Just the Australian markets? Um, I trade the US as well. Uh, I, I did trade the US primarily for a few, few years, but um, you kind of get a bit worn out doing that. 
now uh, just because of the time zone difference. So, so I trade the Australia markets and I'll, I'll run through my US stocks tonight. And, and as I said, I, I chat with um, with Mark Minavini and um, with Gil and stuff over there. So, you know, if, if they're looking at something decent or posting something decent on, on one of their sites, you know, I'll have a look and, and if I need to put an order on, I will. But uh, probably 90% of my stuff will be in Australia these days. Okay. And tell us a little bit about how you how you scan, how you actually go about finding uh, potential trading opportunities like stocks that are setting up uh, in accordance with your uh, criteria. Well, you can write you can write code and and basically any charting package these days. So I I um, have probably oh, fifteen different scans, and I use four religiously and they'll just be looking for basically inflection points so um, for a pocket pivot there's there is just set criteria it's um, you're looking at a 10-day back period for volume you've got to have higher volume than any down day and the stock needs to come from below the 10-day moving average to close above it on that volume so you can write code to find that the vcp um, a little bit harder to write code but you're basically looking for a pivot so you're looking for tightness and price and contraction and volume as well as a contraction in the pattern. So I, I try to write my code relatively loosely and then I, I go through four or 5,000 charts a day and um, a lot of them are the same chart. So I'll, I'll do my, at the end of the day, I'll, I'll run all my scans, build watch lists based on um, how they're setting up, um, the duration of the base, uh, so I might have four active lists, which would move from, you know, potentially viable in the next two weeks to this list will probably go today. And then I'm just adding and subtracting names from those lists. Uh, and, and it's still, uh, you know, it, it, there's no easy way in the stock market that I've found. The scans certainly have, have helped improve. I mean, those those old guys that had to go through them by hand or draw the charts, you know, that that's real work. But it's just repetition going through. You build your chart eye up. All of a sudden, you just see that pattern that, you know, you know based on your scorecard is a good pattern to take. And, and so that's what I do. So I do that every night. Then I'll go through them in the morning with a fresh eye again, um, see if I've missed something, and then put my alerts on. Um, and then, you know, sit down at the desk and, and watch a documentary and wait for the alerts. <laughs> okay, so just so I understood that correctly, you are, you're not manually looking through four to 5,000 charts. That's how many sort of tickers you're feeding into your, your scans. Is that right? I, I'm manually going through them. So I, I, you, you can scroll. I, I've talked to people about this and they, they didn't actually know this existed, which I just I find crazy, but um, just the scroll button on your mouse you know, I can scroll through 50 charts in probably a minute, minute and a half. So I'll just have them set up on the, the daily time frame and the weekly. I'll have 50 on each list because that's the max list can provide from the software. And I'll just scroll down those 50. And it only takes one, two seconds to look at a chart to know if it, it interests me. Um, and, and so most don't. So, and then it's just going through maybe them again in a day, a couple of times. But yeah, so, so it is still a manual process. And then with the fundamental filter, um, 
there's better software in the US. The Australian market doesn't quite have the market Smith platform or the H, uh, HGSI platform where you can sort of scan for certain certain earnings and um, earnings increases and return on equity and, and cash levels and all that. So we just wrote something in Excel which pulls data uh, from a provider there and, and that'll help identify to us what what sectors may be having the highest revenue lift or what companies are having the biggest quarterly increases in earnings or, or revenue and as I said then run them over um, put them through the charts and if, if they're not ready they're not ready if they are they they go to one of the watch lists okay so are you using Excel only or are you using an actual software uh, charting package too Excel is just to pull the fundamental numbers, the charting packages. Um, I, I know TradeStation are uh, a sponsor with you. So we have TradeStation. I've got CQG, got Pro Real Time. I've got a few. So you can write. It doesn't matter what system you write it in. They're sort of, you know, they're all the same. Um, and then you just you just scan for them, and it'll pop up a, a list. Then you just got to click through them. So if we were to look at your chart, if we were sitting in your computer chair right now looking at your screens, what sort of technical and indicators and technical analysis would we see on your charts? I'm uh, just really a price and volume person and so I, I don't really look at RSI um, or MACD. I, I do have an MACD just for my intraday when I'm moving into a position but for me really all I need is, is price and volume and moving averages and I use the moving averages as reference points, uh, where a stock should be accumulated from, where, if, where the base is or where the price in the base is sitting. Is it sitting on top of a moving average? Is, is the price chopping down through the moving average? Because when a stock's trending, institutions will be buying it, so they'll normally be holding a certain price point, um, whether that be the 20-day EMA or if it's trending hard, you know, the 10-day and that also gives you a reference point to, to trail a stop or or if you think that that immediate term trend is, has shifted or changed. Uh, so, yeah, there's, it's pretty simple what I do. It's, it's, it's volume analysis and price analysis and, and base analysis. Okay, so once you've identified a name which you, you see as a trading opportunity, what actually serves as your confirmation signal to get into a position? So I'm normally using a pivot point. So most setups that I'll buy will have a contraction through the range. So if you think about it like a, a cup shape, like what you'd see on a cup and handle, I really want to see at least two cups, if not three or four, with each cup getting smaller as it moves to the right of the chart. Um, and through there, um, I want to see the range of price also contract. So it should just look like three little mini cups coming into each other because that's telling me that the supply is, is diminishing. So there's not so many people willing to sell their stock at that. So the weak hands are being weeded out. I've, I'm only buying uptrending stocks. So you're going to have less of, you know, likelihood of that really bad news result, not buying stocks that have ever had a gap down in the price, I'd stay away from them. And then finally, when the stock is setting up, for me, it should have a big dry up in volume and the price ideally 
just goes super tight for a couple of days. And that might only be one day. It could be three or four days. And then I'll just set my alert above above that little pivot point. And when that goes through there, I'm buying. So you set an alert and then you put an order in once you obviously check it out and see if that's something you want to be in. Uh, you don't actually have orders waiting in the market to catch that? It, it depends on the stock. A, a lot of the smaller stuff in Australia, it, it, it's too risky with the spread. And a bigger stock, obviously, no problem. But no, I, I generally manually put it in. I still have that discretionary um, opinion where I'll look and go, right, yep, that's ready to go, that's not. And so, it, you know, the, the negative of that, I guess, is if you get multiple signals at a time, but, I mean, that very, very rarely happens. So my, my computer will just start beeping at me and, and that's time for me to, um, you know, to start pressing a few buttons. Right. Now, I might just mention, um, it might be helpful for those who are listening and actually want to visualize some of these things that uh, we're discussing here. Um, so you post a lot of these setups and a lot of charts on Twitter. So I was going to suggest if um, you want to actually see what this looks like, sort of struggling a little bit to visualize it in your head, check out uh, your Twitter feed. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, it's at Rolly, R-O-L-L-Y, Trader. Okay, excellent. At Rolly Trader. Now, just still on the point about entries, what happens if you miss your ideal entry point? As we discussed before, that's, that's something that'll be in my trading plan, which is another thing I think you have to have. So it's basically a rule book for your trades. Um, and it was something that, that Mark Cook just drummed into your head. If you don't have one, you won't survive. And I, I think it's very true. So for me, if it goes 4% past there, it's, it's off the table. I just won't take it. So it's, it's as simple as that. And often you'll get a pullback, what I would call a pullback buy, where the stock breaks out and then it'll pull back and to retest that, um, that breakout level. And so I'll keep it on the watch list and, you know, be ready to, to buy it potentially off, off another setup that happens during, during its run. But, um, yeah, I'm not going to chase anything. Okay. So if prices moved more than 4% beyond your actual ideal entry point, yeah. you leave it. If it comes back into that zone and retests the breakout point, um, then you may consider taking an entry then. Yeah. If what I want to see is I don't want to ever buy on weakness. So if it comes back in and, and tests that breakout point, I'm waiting for the next day for the, the close or for the intraday to be above that previous day's high. Got it. Okay. Now, how do you determine your risk and your position size for each trade that you put on? Well, there's, there's a formula called optimal F, and if you put in your trading stats, uh, that'll tell you the optimal position size you should be taking based off your, your, um, your performance. But for me, generally, broadly speaking, I, I don't like to trade more than 8% in a position. Um, and that, that's on the initial position. If I'm in a name that goes up quickly, obviously that will increase your your exposure just through its return. Um, but I, I will go up to 20% into one stock 
um, if, if I get multiple setups in there. But just how the market's been the last couple of years, it, it, it's been very choppy. It hasn't paid to pyramid your positions. It has been more of a swing trader's market. So that, that's pushed me back when there was uh, some stuff trending in 2010 and 11, 12, um, my approach was slightly different. And, and you've just got to adapt with the market. I mean, you know, you, you have your trading rules, but they, they have to be adapted because the market's dynamic um, and it, it, it's not the same. It, it changes all the time, but, you know, yet the character remains the same. So you can operate with with similar setups and similar criteria, but there's, there's right and wrong times to, to implement implement those criteria. Okay. And I just want to clarify something. When you said that, when you mentioned 20%, that doesn't actually mean that you're risking 20% of your capital, does it? Oh, no. God, no. Well, I, I guess effectively you are if it announced something and, and went to zero. But um, no, my, my average stock will be what is about six and a half percent. So, um, you know, if I'm, let's just call it 10 percent to make it easy. So if you're taking a 10 percent position size, your risk um, with a 10 percent stop is one percent of your total capital. And I think that's that's a good place to start. You probably want to be between half a percent and two percent, depending on your experience and and your trading style, but if you go too much smaller, you you know it's hard to to make those big gains. And if you go bigger, you know you're asking for trouble because you're going to have that occasional stock that gaps down on you, and you're of course going to have a lot of losing stocks. So um, yeah, controlling risk is is the number one factor, I think, in a in a successful trader. Anyone can work out how to buy a a VCP or a pocket pivot or anything like that. But if you don't control the risk and, and don't know how to incrementally scale in and scale out of the market, um, you know, you're going you're to deal with big drawdowns. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, you, you mentioned or you brought up optimal F uh, as a formula for having sort of optimal position sizing. Yeah. Where can we find out more info about that? What is optimal F? I've, I've never heard of that. I just say Google. I use one through um, actually through Mark Minervini's site. He has a calculator on there, and so yeah. So if you put in that, your average gain is fifteen percent. Your average loss is is seven percent, and your win loss ratio is fifty percent. Um, and you your target is to make a you know a fifty percent return this year. It'll say well you'll probably need to do eighty trades at. 11% position size or, or whatever it is. Um, so that's disappointing. But, I mean, it, you probably don't need to get as complicated as, as that. Um, I think, you know, the, the general rule of thumb is, is probably 5 to 10% for most people that you see on, on what position size is a percentage of their portfolio they should take. And, and then, uh, yeah, your risk obviously depends on what, what nature of stock you're trading? A lot of people in Australia trade the the really micro cap names, and you know they they award good returns, but you know the spread on them can be ten percent alone. So it's hard to to be a a real risk manager when the bid and ask can stop you out. And I I, I think that's another. Um, pitfall of of new traders is to go into those penny stocks. Uh, you're, you're better to trade the leading names and develop your skills, 
you know, trading them, trading the the Domino's pizzas or the, um, you know, the, the mid-cap leading names, the aristocrats, uh, and, and you're not going to get the big the big moves. Well, Domino's probably proves me wrong there, but um, you're not going to get them so quickly. And I think a lot of people like that gambling feel where they go into a one-cent stock and it goes up to two cents and, you know, they, they think they've done something right. Yeah. Uh, so just going to the other end of the trade now, how do you determine your exit points? Selling's very, very hard. It's something I'm, I'm certainly uh, work in progress. But for me, again, your average gain will dictate a lot. What you know that, you know, you, your scorecard says that you make and also a multiple of risk. So if I'm, if I'm risking, um, you know, call it one in and which might be five percent and all of a sudden I make twenty percent, I'll I'll definitely be be selling partial into that. And then it depends on how quickly it moves. If it if it moves up twenty percent and then in two or three days I'll I'll probably sell a big portion of that into it. If it's a nice orderly chart and slowly drifting up, I'm probably adding to it. Uh, and then finally to get out I'll use a moving average so that will depend on on the trend of of the name I've bought. If it's if it's holding the twenty day um, on the first test, you know, and then it breaks down through it on its second test, that's that's when I'll get out. Okay, so it's fair to say that your exits involve quite a bit of discretion. Yeah, they do. It, it depends. It depends on the nature of the market. I mean, uh, a name, for example, that we've been, well, I've been tweeting a bit lately that IIL and, and CIA, um, that was a, a power play setup, which is a um, a particular setup where the stock moves 100% in in less than eight weeks, and then has a, a base less than 25%, and then resets up a base and most people think it's way too extended but it's actually quite a good good probability trade so we're buying that CIA at, at 50 cents and it just ran straight to a dollar um, and probably the last week uh, so I was actually selling a bit today and I sold a bit uh, two days ago and you know there, there's sort of no rules there it had it had three gap ups in a row and and it's just moved so hard, and so I'm just going to bag some and and let the rest ride. Ideally, I I want to move my stop to break even as soon as I as soon as possible. So if I'm up ten percent in a trade, um, I'll, I'll just try to reduce my risk immediately. So bring the stop up if it, if it moves up fifteen twenty, I might sell twenty five percent of. If it forms a new base, I'll just add back. I'll buy more. So again, it's just incremental, incremental selling, incremental buying, reducing risk where I can. Well, sounds like a good trade to be in. Well done. <laughs> now you said a little earlier, or well, you hinted that most of your trades are on the long side. I'm interested to hear the reason for this. Why do you prefer the trading the long side? and rarely trade the short side? There's been a few occasions I've been on the short side in the last the last sort of three or four years, but, I mean, we're in a bull market. Well, certainly in the US. Um, the Australian market, there was a great trade, short resources, um, until probably a year ago, a uh, year and a half ago maybe. I, I, I'm not as good as at shorting stocks, so purely my scorecard tells me that. So I'm not going to focus on it. 
if the market comes under distribution and I'm forced back to cash, again, by keeping a leading names watch list, the best names to short are the former leaders. Um, they're the ones that will break down the hardest because they're the ones that have the most froth in them. So if I'm looking through uh, the list there and they're all looking like they're going to you know, continue falling, I'll move in on the short side. But it, it's not something I want to be doing. I don't have any short positions on at the moment. It's not something when the market's uh, giving on the long side that I want to be doing. Um, just purely for a state of mind thing and uh, and purely because the reward for me is not there um, and and I don't I'm, I'm not one who hedges out my portfolio I mean very rarely will I do that maybe if there's a, a big event coming I might you know use a few options or or take an index position but um, you know that would be once a year once or twice a year okay so really what you're trying to do here is just focus on your strengths ignore your weaknesses well i'm working on the weaknesses but i'm working more on what makes me money um you know there's no point trading something that's not going to make me as much money even if i'm better at trading it the 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 market you know especially the us that it's it's a strong uptrend so i just i don't think you need to be on the short side unless you're probably a shorter term trader than i am um, and absolutely, you know, nothing wrong with with trading short, and and those people are good at it. Um, it's great, but it's yeah, it's just not one of one of my strengths. Um, so it's something. It's not something I avoid, but it's something that just doesn't happen as a large percentage of my trades. Yeah, makes sense. Now, stepping aside from trading, something which you have done, which I'd like to ask you a few questions about is you've actually taken some of your trading profits and you've put them into uh, venture capital. What attracted you to venture capital? I've always liked, I guess, how business operates and, and being involved in small businesses. I've got a few friends that have you know, been pretty successful uh, as entrepreneurs and I guess when I was an analyst and working on um, in the different side of the market, you'd meet so many uh, company management spokesmen for the company, and you'd hear their stories, and and some of them, you know, were great stories. Some of them you could quickly identify probably weren't going to amount to too much. But it always intrigued me to see how the business actually works under the hood, and um, just I guess by chance. Um, we got into well, I got into the first one and brought a couple of other people in, and and it was a friend developing a business, um, and he was asking for for some advice, and I said, do you need you know some capital, and and he did, and and that business is is ticking along. We're sort of up to eighty staff now, um, and two of them I've, I've started myself, um, and and the others again are just opportunities which I've seen which. All of the ones we look at have an idea to to IPO or, well, ideally to IPO, but they're, they're products which potentially have that appeal and have that exponential growth. Um, so like any startup, they will require capital and, and, you know, some will fail, some will succeed. So similar to the market, it's, it's um, you know, just trying to identify the good ones and, and, and stick with them because you're going to get your bad ones. There's no doubt about that. So we've, we've got five uh, businesses now under there and and they're all alive at the moment. Maybe next year I can report in and, and tell you how they're going. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, are there certain types of businesses which you prefer to invest in? Well, certainly the what we have invested in has been, they're all very different. One's property, one's, um, one's equipment hire, one's a stock market, one, uh, one's fashion and one's in agriculture. And it's all pretty different industries, but they're all connecting people. So I guess they're all this, this new world, um, technology, either one's AI, one's, um, just, Aggregating all the all the suppliers uh, and tenderer options, so it's just I guess they're just all trying to make it easier for company management to operate. So we're trying to find them a solution at uh, either no cost to them or very little cost to them, and then something they can roll out through their businesses. And it certainly seems to be the the new the new way forward is. Um, <laughs> especially with AI and how it's starting to now come in is, you know, 10 years ago people thought Webjet was an out there or five years ago, whatever it was, was an out there process and having one website which shows you all the flights and, and where they can go and, I mean, in a few years' time, you know, it's just going to be a, a chatbot or a personal assistant on your phone which you tell and, and they go and source that data for you. So maybe... We're just uh, building products for the lazy man, but we'll see. So is that intentional that each one of these businesses is in a totally separate industry or is it just kind of worked out that way? No, it's probably more just worked out that way, I think. But I think I think probably in the small business world, you're either very specialized and you know, have, have a big company or especially in the more venture capital uh, model, you're, you're probably a little bit more diversified. Right. And have you noticed any big similarities between trading and venture capital? Well, I mean, it's all it's all just risk reward. So I guess I guess that's you know a, a very obvious one. Um, the you know the liquidity of the stock market is is just it's it's a it's a gift. People probably don't appreciate it enough. Um, the ease, especially if you're a small account, you know, if you're under three or five million dollars, just your ability to come into a position and out of a position in minutes um, is just huge. You can, as we've discussed, just move back to cash, take some time off. You can regather your thoughts. And in the private business world, you know, you, you're stuck there. And and um, most businesses require multiple capital injections. So, you know, you've really got to make it work and, and there's more often than not never a liquidity event. So there's certainly different mindsets that you, that you need and, and we've got good uh, managers who, who run all the businesses. So that's, um, you know, they, they take on that burden more than I do. Yeah, and that's a very good point. I mean, I recently sold a property and... I remember saying to uh, my girlfriend, I was just like, the process you've got to go through to sell real estate is ridiculous. You know, like if I wanted to sell, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars worth of stock, I could literally do it within a minute. Exactly. You know, in real estate, that whole process drags out like three months pretty easily. So I think that liquidity of trading is, is a huge appeal. Now, you said earlier that you have plans or it's kind of um, in the uh, in the future to IPO some of these companies. That would be the ideal situation. Um, what's the 
What's the process involved in actually getting to an IPO and what's the incentive of doing so, of going from a private company to a public company? The process, we've got one now, I guess you would call it in the process. Um, so you you meet a few brokers or, or corporate advisors and, and they either like and believe in the story or they don't and assuming they do, um, you might do a pre-IPO which for a, a small, the transition from a private to public business involves quite a lot in terms of compliance. So you might need X amount of new heads come in. So you might do a pre-IPO to, to be able to fund that, um, and get, get all your, you know, everything audited and get everything looking correctly. And then, uh, and then you, you move through it. It takes about a year if you're doing the pre-IPO or, or nine months. Uh, and the benefit, I guess, is, is access to capital, um, especially with, with companies that have a lot of potential, but require a lot of, a lot of money to get there. There's only so much help that the founding shareholders can do. And we've, we've had a few external capital raisings, um, for the different companies. And, you know, it's a very hard, long process. Um, we, we, we're probably a year doing a raise for one of the businesses and it, it really took the MDs a lot of their time and great we got it away. I mean, you know, it's, it's fantastic and the company's, company's growing, growing quickly. Uh, so I guess a liquidity event for shareholders, the chance for new shareholders to come in who believe in the story and, and the access to, to capital to grow the business. So I, I guess that, that those are the defining features. Yeah, no, that's good. And, and so, how does a pre-IPO work? Well, you you might just go to whatever broker it is, and you might say we we want to raise four or five million on the IPO, and we might need half a million or a million, um, you know, six months before in order to employ, you know, maybe a professional chairman or a new a, a director who's got a name in the industry. Um, do your compliance tidy up a few things. So it's really just a little bit of teething money uh, so you're ready to hit the market properly because there are those additional regulations and the costs of actually IPOing and, and doing all that. So, you know, if, if, you, if your business is flush with cash, um, you, might, you might not do a pre-IPO. Um, but if, if you need a bit of tidy up money or expansion capital, um, that's something you're doing. And normally that might be sort of in a, a six-month window until the IPO and those people who come in at that level are normally um, given the shares or they purchase the shares at a discount to to what the IPO will be and that, that might be 10 to 20 25% for taking on that additional risk. Right, right, okay. Cool, man. Well, let's leave it at that. Um, where can listeners go to find out a bit more about you? Um, is there anything you want to share? Is there anything you're working on um, yeah, give us a lowdown. Well, we one of the, the new companies I've been building, uh, it's called Subi, S-U-U-B-E-E. And what we're trying to make is a new, a new way to access financial information for stock traders in Australia. So I'll be providing every trade I do through there. There'll be uh, lots of lots of traders that I'm sure some of your listeners follow on Twitter um, who'll be doing that. We'll be having 
trader meetups, discussions, really just trying to build a new platform to help educate and train people uh, and and for, for traders to watch someone trade and, and learn their style and, and eventually be able to, to mimic it. So we've been building that for the last two years and we're in uh, beta at the moment. So we're, we're hopefully we'll be launching later on in, in the year. Um, but we've, there's a web page up just for expressions of interest. So if anyone wants to really see what I'm doing, I mean, I'll be doing everything through there by the time we open. Otherwise, um, I'm just on, on Twitter. Okay. And do you just want to share your Twitter handle one more time? So it was at Rolly Trader. Okay. And that's R-O-L-L-Y Trader. That's right. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming on. It's been really great speaking with you. And um, yeah, thanks a lot for agreeing to do this. Thank you very much, Aaron, for including me and uh, look forward to having a chat soon. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Chat with Traders.